listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. When we receive Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper, are we also receiving His divine nature? Another question, why are some of the more formal services that we find in the hymnal better than the less formal so-called contemporary worship services? Well, we ran out of time yesterday for Pastors Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer to respond to all your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is an associate pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. He is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and is author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? Let's begin with Pastor Wolfmiller's answer to this question from Jay. If he had only one hour to discuss St. Peter at a men's group breakfast, which of his actions and or theological points from his epistles would you focus on? Well, Peter loves to focus our attention on suffering and hope. I think I would speak of the seven times that Peter talks about suffering in First Peter. Each one of them is important. He has seven counsels on suffering, and his key point is that we suffer with Christ. And I suppose he even amps it up and points out how Christ suffers for us. So that suffering of Christ for us, and then the suffering of Christ with us, Christ also suffered is the way that Peter says it over and over. And that's an incredible encouragement for us. Tommy in Pennsylvania says to Pastor Ketchelmeyer, was Jonah a type and shadow of John the Baptist? Uh, no, <laughs> that's just a straight up no. Uh, so the, the prophets in the Old Testament are always foreshadowing Jesus, always a type of Jesus. Uh, the sending forth of a prophet, sending forth of a man in that prophetic office to proclaim the word of God is always teaching us about how the Father is going to send forth the Son, that God sends forth the word in particular, the word incarnate, so the word in flesh, Jesus, uh, who is born of the Virgin Mary. And so it's a type of Jesus, always a foreshadowing of Jesus and who he is. And of course, Jonah himself is the one who is in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. And this is what Jesus does. And Jesus himself says so. And so one who is greater than Jonah is Jesus himself. So that's what we, we want to see here when we look at all of the prophets of old, that they're always going to be pointing to Jesus and who he is and what he does. So John the baptizer is just one of the prophets who is leading the way, preparing the way. And of course, John the baptizer himself would be talked about in Isaiah chapter 40, the voice crying out in the wilderness, making ready the way of the Lord. So that's where you want to see John the baptizer is in Isaiah, not in the person of Jonah. So again, when you're looking at the 
person in the work of somebody like Isaiah or Jonah or Moses. That is teaching us about the person of Jesus and his work, because Jesus, of course, is greater than Moses. And even Moses himself says, a prophet like me will be raised up from your own brothers, O Judah. So you're waiting for the one who is the son. So you wouldn't say that any of these prophets are a type or a shadow of John the Baptist. And so you wouldn't do that. Now, of course, in Malachi, when you're talking about the messenger preparing the way, that's also where you would see John the baptizer. But it's not about a type. It's about the promise of the voice in the wilderness, promise about the messenger preparing the way of the Lord. A question for Pastor Wolf Miller. Catherine says, God is omniscient, so God created this world knowing in advance that Adam and Eve would sin. I don't understand the difference between God's omniscience and free will. Wouldn't Satan rebelling against God sin? How did an angel of God rebel when God created a perfect world and heaven is perfect? So who sinned first, Satan or Adam and Eve? Well, it must have been Satan. First, uh, maybe a word of warning about these kind of questions. We want to make sure that we bind ourselves to the scriptures and we don't go beyond what the scriptures tell us. And that means that there's going to be some things that we just don't know the answer to. And if we press out into the places where we're trying to deduce things from what the scriptures do reveal, we just know that we're in tenuous territory. It could be this or it could be that, or maybe it's this or that. So we just want to bind ourselves to the Lord's word. When we say sola scriptura, we're not just saying that the Bible gives us all that we need to know for this, for doctrine and life, but we're also saying that it constrains us. It limits our knowledge. The end of the scriptures is not a wall that we run into. It's a cliff where we have to bow down and say, I'm not going to go any further. I'm going to worship the Lord here. So that word of constraints, this question is a helpful reminder for that. So the scriptures do tell us that the devil came in the form of a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, so it must be that the devil fell before Adam and Eve. The church fathers, especially like Hillary and Luther will go on to this, will guess that the devil's fall was connected to the creation of Adam and Eve in that this glorious creature was set to serve Adam and Eve. And Paul gives us a little hint at that when he warns us of about ordaining a man too quickly into the ministry, lest he be puffed up and fall into the same temptation of the devil. So that the devil's fall was connected to pride. Now, we know that the Lord created Adam and Eve so that they were able to sin, and apparently the angels, who became devils, that they were also able to sin. How God could create the capacity of sin in a world that is good is where we just have to say, well, it must be that way, but the question why is not told us. It must be because that's exactly how the Lord wanted it to be, for his own glory and also for our own comfort. But to press any further, I think, puts us on particularly tenuous and dangerous territory. Paul in Virginia says, for Pastor Ketchelmeyer, could you please discuss sometime precisely why we equate Son of God with true God? I think I know why, but more background always helps. Oh, this is great, Paul. Thank you for asking this. Because again, earlier I was just mentioned about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Obviously, the Jehovah's Witnesses reject the deity of Christ, and they would put forth something like, there's a difference between being son of God and being God, meaning that Jesus is not God. And so that, that's a problem. I mean, when you have an, an earthly understanding, when you are limited by the logic that's been corrupted of sin, and the reason 
you, you cannot actually hear the word of God because you're trying to make sense of it from your own perspective. And you say, so if on the one hand you have a son of God and on the other hand you have a God, those are two different entities. One's God and one's not. Well, that's not what the scripture is teaching us at all. Instead, we want to be taught by the scripture. We want our eyes to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit, who is the author, right? He's the one who has the authority. Okay. He inspires the, the prophets and the apostles to write. So I think what's most helpful is to begin with John in his first epistle in chapter five. So the evangelist John himself is the one who's really trying to emphasize this for us, to teach us what we mean by son of God on the one hand and what we mean by true God on the other hand. So in first John chapter five, verse 20, he writes and says this, and we know that the son of God Okay, we're talking about the second person, the Holy Trinity, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. So we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know the one who is true. And we are in the one who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This one is the true God and eternal life. So Jesus Christ is the one who is true God and eternal life. And so you have an understanding here of equating, uh, when you, you use the question equate, how do we equate or why do we equate? We want to understand that we are talking about equality in this sense, that the Father and the Son are co-equal along with the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Holy Trinity are co-equal, meaning that they receive the same honor and worship and glory. At the same time, they're all co-essential. They are of the same essence, the divine essence of the same substance, the divine nature, and of course, they are all co-eternal. And so when John's teaching us about this, that the Son is true God, you look at the gospel itself, and it begins in chapter one by saying, in the beginning was the word. Okay, that's another title that's given, the Lagos, to the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the essential son. He is the one who is eternal. And so that's why in the beginning was the word and the word was with God or more literally pros, which is toward God. And so now you have an understanding of word and God. This doesn't mean that the word is not divine, that the word is not of the divine essence or the divine nature, but instead you have a distinction. So we're being taught this distinction in the plurality of persons of the Holy Trinity. So you have God and you have the word of God and you have the spirit of God, all three persons. And so the father is the one that we refer to as the first person of the Holy Trinity. So here you have a distinction between the word and God the Father, because God the Father did not become man. God the Father is not the Word. God the Father is the one who sends forth the Son. He's the one who speaks. The Father is the one who is the sender, and the Son is the one who is sent. So he is the spokesman of the Holy Trinity. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was toward God, and the Word was God. And so now you have this distinction of plurality of persons, a distinction between God and the word of God, but then also the clarification that the word is essential God of the same essence, but he's also eternal. So he's there from the beginning. And later on, you have in chapter one, where you have an understanding that no one has ever seen God. And again, when you look out throughout the whole Old Testament, you have the prophets, the patriarchs are seeing God quite frequently, but they're always seeing the 
only begotten God, the monogenes theos. And so that understanding of begotten, this was the whole issue that was being hammered out at the Council of Nicaea, all the way to the Council of, of Constantinople from 325 to 381, in that moment of controversy where Arius begins a new teaching saying that, well, if the second person is a son and the first person is a father, then that means that there's a time when the son didn't exist because he's using his limited logic and saying, well, the father comes first and then has a son later on. Well, that's not what's being taught here because we already have an understanding of eternity, that the word is in the beginning. The word is, always was. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. There never was a time when he didn't exist. There never was a time when God didn't have the word. There never was a time when the father didn't have the son. And so that's why the church will confess and say that the father is eternally unbegotten, whereas the son is eternally begotten. So in John 1.18, you have no one has ever seen God, but instead the only begotten God, the monogenes, theos, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John is using this language of only begotten so that we understand that he is of the same divine essence, the same divine substance, that same divine nature. And so this is why we would say in the creed that he is true God of true God, begotten, not made. And so we're making a clear statement, a testimony of what the scriptures teach us, that the Son is eternal and the Son is true God. In fact, this is what you have in the rest of John's gospel when you get to like, for instance, chapter five, where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath and Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working until now, making a claim to be of that same honor and glory co-equal with the Father. And so those who hear these words of Jesus, they are very upset saying he's breaking the Sabbath, but not only is that, he's calling God his own Father, which makes himself equal with God. So this was the complaint that's being filed, that when Jesus calls God the Father, my Father, that Jesus is making an equality with God, which is something that he has from all eternity. Or you see this later on in John chapter 5, you drop down to verse 21, where the Son gives life, well, so does the Father give life. So he's doing the same thing. And then Jesus makes this even more clear when he says in verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. Or later on in John chapter 8, when you have this whole debate that's going on where those who have gathered begin to believe in Jesus, but they don't want to hear what he has to say, and they're going to pick up stones to throw at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus says that before Abraham was, I am. And they're going to pick up stones because they're going to say, hey, you can't be eternal. You can't be before Abraham. You are only 50 years old because you are trying to make yourself eternal with the Father. Father. Or later on in chapter 9, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and they cry out in John chapter 10 at verse 33, it's saying that you are being a man, you are making yourself equal with God. So, I mean, that's, that's always going to be the issue here. And even in John 19, when Jesus is going to be crucified, the reason and the rationale is because according to the law, he has to die because he's made himself out to be the son of God. He's made himself out to be true God of true God, begotten, not made, and true light of true light. So therefore, they're going to put him to death. So if you look at 
John's gospel, the evangelist, as he teaches this distinction in persons of the Father and the Son, but at the same time, this unity of essence, that they are co-equal, they are co-essential, they are co-eternal, likewise with the Holy Spirit. So the church confesses that the Father is eternally unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding. Yet there are not three gods, but there are one. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Diane has a question about the Lord's Supper next. week on the word of the Lord endures forever, we continue on in James with a dead faith, faith and works, taming the tongue, a restless evil, and wisdom from above. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for the word of the Lord endures forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Declaring to you the whole counsel of God, you're listening to Issues Etc. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. The Evangelical Lutheran Church holds that it is God who raises up men to serve His Holy Bride through His Office of the Holy Ministry. At Concordia University, Chicago, we prepare men to take the first step on the path by which God leads them to His pastoral office. Are you ready to take the step? I'm Dr. James Ambrose Lee, Chair of the Division of Theology at Concordia University, Chicago. Learn more about the pre-seminary program at CUC by visiting cuchicago.edu, cuchicago.edu. Lutherans for Life equips Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Visit lutheransforlife.org to check out their free pro-life resources and for information on their Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, lutheransforlife.org. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Wolfmiller, Diane has this question. Am I correct to assume that we receive in Holy Communion the humanity and the divinity of Christ's body and blood in, with, and under the bread and wine We think about Jesus shedding his blood for us in his crucifixion, his human nature, at the Lord's Supper. But what about the divine nature at the Lord's Supper? 
Yeah, it's good to think about this in connection with what Jesus says, which is simply when he gives us the bread, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. And then with the cup, he says, this is the blood of the New Testament shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So the gifts that Jesus gives in the bread is the gift of his body, and in the cup is the gift of his blood. Now, this is the body that Jesus has assumed and united through the personal union to his divine nature, the same with his blood. So it is true that we, in a way, get all of Jesus when he gives us the body and the blood. But we have to, I think, again, work on constraining ourselves to what the Lord says. So the body that's crucified, the body that's laid in the tomb, the body that's risen from the dead, the body that sits at the right hand of the Father, the body that's united to the divine nature of the Son, that's the body that's given. But it is the body. Here's an example of the way this can get kind of wonky, is in the Catholic Church, especially in the Middle Ages when they would practice communion in one kind, and they would just give the body to the laity and not the blood. They said, well, it's because of the doctrine of concomitance. The body is the body of Jesus, which has blood in it. So you get the body and the blood when you get the bread. The Lutheran said, look, you know, you get us thinking about all these things. Look, Jesus says, this is my body. Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is the blood. So that we want to receive the gift according to his words. So I think the, the answer is yes. When we receive the body of Jesus, it's the same body that's united to his divine nature. But what he's giving us is the body that's crucified, buried, raised, and at the right hand of the Father. And we receive then the gift that he wants to give is the body without so much concern about the divine nature. Maybe one more quick thing. It is precisely because the body of Jesus is united to his divine nature and that the attributes of the divine nature are communicated to his body, that his body can be here on the altar at St. Paul Lutheran Church and also on the altar down there at Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio and on all the different altars all over the world, the Lord is able to place his body there for us precisely because it's united with his divine nature. But that's so that we can receive this gift, his body, his blood, and the forgiveness of all of our sins. I'd also strongly recommend that uh, the the listener check out a series that we did recently with Pastor Will Whedon on the Catalog of Testimonies in the Lutheran Confessions that deals extensively with that very question that she had. So, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Eric in Tennessee says, could Christ be referring to Mary as woman, be a reference to Eve, who was woman in the Garden of Eden? Any commentaries on this subject? Well, of course, I mean, anytime you have a woman in the Old Testament, which is Ish-ah, I mean, that's what you're looking at, which could either be a woman or a wife, uh, which comes from man, which is Ish, which could either be a man or a husband. I mean, you get this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, where the man says, she is now bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called Ish-ah because she is taken from man, ish. That's the whole understanding there that every time you see a, a man, a husband, a bride, a wife, I mean, it's going to point to the church is the bride and the husband, of course, is the groom who lays down his life for the, the bride. Eve, of course, is the mother of all the living. And obviously in John's gospel, when Jesus refers to Mary as woman, 
Obviously, this is at a wedding feast. We know that uh, when you see a wedding, a marriage, you see that picture of Christ giving up his life for his bride, his wife, to make her holy and to cleanse her. But I don't know if you want to say specifically, that's why he said that specifically to her, a woman. I mean, obviously, this definitely points to it. But then in, in that reality, anytime you have wife, anytime you have woman, it would point back towards that also. And so when you're looking at these texts, yes, it is in the reality that Eve is the mother of all the living, that she's the one who's going to give life, and she's the one who is uh, at the, the cause or at the root of this whole fall into sin where she takes the fruit, she looks at it, she takes it, she eats it, she hands it to her husband. And so, yes, you do see kind of things being changed, the great reversal with Mary, who is the one who says, you know, how can it be I'm a virgin, that I'm going to conceive a child, and then let it be according to the word of God. So yes, you see a contrast between what Eve did, who added to the word of God, and what you have with Mary, who as a servant subjects herself underneath that word of God, subordinates herself underneath that word. So I mean, yes, that's definitely there, but I, I don't know. We, we want to be careful that just because he said that there, that that means means that that's specifically a reference to Eve. But of course, anytime you talk about a woman, a mother, a wife, this all is going to go back to Eve. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Gary's got a question about formal services in the hymnal versus contemporary worship for Pastor Wolfmiller on the other side of the break after our conversation with them concludes. Dr. Yakutslav Horpinchuk is going to join us. He's Bishop of the Ukrainian Lutheran Church. We'll have a conversation with him about the two-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Mascuda, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Mascuda, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmascuta.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of the book Has American Christianity Failed, are our guests. Pastor Wolfmiller, Gary has a question. Could you give some reasons 
why the more formal services as we have in the Lutheran service book are better than those less formal, so-called contemporary worship. Our hearts are shaped by our worship. So we are impressionable stuff. It's good for us to remember this. And and especially in worship, it's it's shaping us. So we have the Psalms that say, look, if you worship the idols, you become like them. They have eyes they don't see. They have ears they don't hear. They have feet they don't walk. And those who make them are like them, and so are all who worship them. So in our worship, we're being shaped into something. It's like a, a seal that's being pressed into the wax of our heart. And the divine service is intentionally given to us by the Lord to shape our hearts into the same shape as his own heavenly court. So our hearts are like a little courtroom, and they want to be shaped like the heavenly court, not like the chaos of the devil's kingdom. And so that's what's happening in the divine service. It's a reflection of all the things that are happening in heaven, the conversation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the hearing of, of a court case and the declaration of innocence, the hearing of petitions, the sending forth of uh, of the Lord's servants, and the worship of God is all happening there, and all of that is captured in our liturgical service. We come into church and we make a plea that we're guilty of all sins, and then we hear the announcement of God, and we hear the conversation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Lord hears our petitions, and he sends us forth. It's a beautiful, full reflection of the heavenly realities brought brought down to us by the Lord's command. We do these things on Sunday, the hearing of God's word and the hearing of the preaching and the receiving of the body and blood of Jesus, because he said, do this, and his kingdom comes in these things. When we step away from that, what tends to happen is we get carried away with one thing or another to the detriment of the the full counsel of God. So especially in the modern praise service, They've captured one aspect of the heavenly reality that we sing the praises of God and we extol him for who he is and what he's done. And that takes over the whole deal. And the reason why it's so appealing to people is because we're, we're addicted to our own feelings and the authority of our inner experiences. And we think that if we feel close to God, we are. If we feel forgiven, we are. If we feel merciful, we, we are, whatever. And so we're, we're addicted to the authority of our feelings and these praise services appeal to those addictions that we have. Part of the work that I do, I think most of pastors do all the time, is convincing people that their feelings are not always right. So, look, if you feel close to God, God be praised, because he promised that he'll never leave you or forsake you. But the problem is, just as you feel close to God, you also feel far from God, and so what? Because he promised, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we have to submit our own feelings and our own experiences to the Word of God and the liturgical services help us to do this. I think the more casual services take us away from that certainty into the experiential realm. And when you live by the experience, you die by the experience. When you live by the feelings, you die by the feelings. And it's a dangerous spiritual place to put people. A question for both of you to round things off. From Celia in Norway. As I was both reading and listening to Pastor Whedon's devotions through the beginning of Genesis, it made me wonder what things were like just after the fall into sin before the flood. How big a difference there was between Adam and Eve before the fall and after, and was evil something that evolved, or was the entire world completely corrupted immediately after the first bite of the forbidden fruit? I mean, outwardly, not in their now sinful beings. What are your thoughts there first, Patrick Ketchelmeyer? Well, I think it is actually, this is interesting because it is related to the previous question about the, the different, the formal service. When we talk about a formal service, we're talking about the liturgical life of the 
historic church. So we always want to have this historicity. And so now notice that we're talking about the saints of old. You're going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so when we go through all the patriarchs, when we go through the scriptures and we say we're joined together right now in worship as we are waiting for the unseen to be seen. And you have that picture in the book of Revelation where John sees the ascended Christ and he sees the people of God gathered around the altar asking the question, how long, O Lord, will we still see suffering and sorrow and sadness? So you're waiting for that time when this will be no more, that the lamb who was slain is in our midst right now. So I think that you see these pictures, and really the pictures uh, are these pictures of, of what life is like without sin, sin that no longer reigns over us, sin no longer that takes us away from God, but that we would feel the fullness, there's the word feeling, but we would see the fullness, that we would be in the fullness of God without death, without suffering, without sickness, without sorrow. All of these things would be gone. And so that's that picture that we want in connection with the historicity of the church, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, because of course with Cain, that's that first event that takes place where you have one who is slain. You have the shedding of the blood, you have suffering, and you have death. What are your thoughts, Pastor Wolf Miller? I think the flood must have been a huge event that really changed so many things in the earth and in the atmosphere, etc. But that the change that happened before and after the flood is nothing compared to the change before and after the fall. And I, I was recently reading Luther's commentary in Genesis 1 and 2, and by the way, so I sent the link to Jeff. You can download that for free, Luther's Genesis commentary on the first four chapters. And it's an amazing thing to read as Luther himself kind of speculates on these things. Like, what was it like before the fall and after the fall? What was it like with Adam and Eve and why was it like this and all this? But he knows that he's kind of speculating on this and he has some really fun speculation. Some of it kind of, you look a little bit funny at him. So I'd, I'd recommend to Celia, you'll have fun looking at that. But it's part of the problem with the fall is we don't know what it was like before the fall. We don't have any experience of what it was like to bear the image and likeness of God. And we see a little bit of the restoration when we watch how it was with Jesus, and we know how it is with him now. We get a little picture. We don't know how it was after the fall, before the flood, how people were living so long and what the earth was like. We don't know. So we have to be content. In some ways, that's a theme of, I think, the questions today. We have to be content with knowing the things that the Lord has revealed to us and letting the things that are not revealed, the hidden things, belong to the Lord and not try to break in and steal knowledge that hasn't been given to us. Pastor Brian Ketchel-Meyer is Associate Pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is Pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One. He's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Pastor Ketchel-Meyer, thank you. Oh, it's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, thanks to you as well. Thank you. Dr. Yakislav Horpinchuk joins us, Bishop of the Ukrainian Lutheran Church to reflect upon the two-year anniversary of the Russia-Ukraine war right after the break. You 
can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13-27. through 27. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. O Lord, open my lips. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern, 8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. 